Good morning. Hello. Again, welcome to One Life Community Church. You've heard it a few times this morning, and I want to make sure you hear it again, that you are welcome, that we are welcoming you here, and that we do it without conditions and without requirements. Uh, we are delighted that you're here and that you're part of this community, whether you've been here, uh, or you've been coming every week for decades, or if you're visiting for the first time, you and all your glory and your goodness and your humanness are welcome here. So before we pray, let, before we pray, before we get too much further, let's pray. <laughs> uh, God be with us this morning. Would you uh, open our ears and our, our interior worlds and our uh, physical senses and our whole persons to you? to what you are inviting us to, to um, what you're doing in this world. Would you move in this place and to help us to find ourselves in you? Amen. So I'm Brian. I'm the worship director. Normally I'm where Rich is today. Was. He's not there right now. Uh, but when he was for a while. Uh, and it's been a long time since I've been here in this space uh, and not singing. The last time I was doing this, the last time I preached was like in the before times. Uh, like pre-pandemic, so it's been a few years, and I don't think I've opened a sermon series like at all, maybe, in like 10 years of working here, so we're all in for a bit of a ride. My, my preaching muscles are a little out of shape, uh, so be kind. Uh, this week marks a number of transitions for us uh, in the context of church and worship, both uh, corporately and individually. Um, and as we talk about these transitions, I'd like for you to look around the room, to pay attention to where you are located, both emotionally and physically, uh, to pay attention to where you are internally, yes, uh, but also to where you are in your bodies, because that's going to be part of our conversation this morning. So transitions. Last week, we ended our sermon series on First John, and this week, we start our new series. Uh, the liturgical calendar, which we'll talk about more in a few minutes, moves out of this very long season of ordinary time and back around to the beginning with the season of Advent. Our songs change. Our decor has changed from a more plain, simple, ordinary look to a space that sits in this realm of both warm and inviting and yet not shying away from the dark corners. Uh, and this is all along with broader cultural shifts as well, right? As we move from the fall towards winter, from things like Halloween and leaves falling and rain, returning, which it's still doing right now, but that's winter here too, uh, and most recently Thanksgiving. Towards darker times, we move away from those things towards darker times, we try to punctuate with lights and songs and decorations, ways that we can endure the, the, the darkest times of the year together. And now, given that we're in church, we're going to talk about Advent. Uh, Advent is the first season of the liturgical calendar, which is one of the like, most rooting ways that the church narrates the life of Christ and church. Uh, and while I know a number of us in the room grew up in churches that, that practiced with the liturgical calendar, I'm actually not sure that we've ever walked through the whole thing in one go here at One Life. Uh, so, like, I honestly can't remember if we've done that. Uh, so we're going to do that. Uh, Henry, if you could pull that slide up. I can't control it from my iPad. The, uh, that one. Uh, so the liturgical calendar is broken into six seasons that tell a story, starting with the anticipation of the birth of Jesus and rolls through into basically after the New Testament. It starts with four weeks of Advent, uh, which begins today, uh, where we take time to prepare for the birth of Jesus. And that's where we are now. Um, and this is where the story starts in the calendar. Like, obviously, things happen before this in the Bible. But this is where the, the, the liturgical calendar starts its cycle, is with the preparation of the birth of Jesus. Uh, we generally try to avoid singing too many Christmas songs in this season because it's intended to be a period of anticipation, of leaning into the longing and waiting for God to move and break into this world. 
And we'll come back to this in a few, but, but first the rest of the calendar. Then after Advent, there's Christmastide, which starts on Christmas Day or Christmas Eve. It's a bit of a gray area there. Um, and runs for 12 days, ending with the Feast of Epiphany, which celebrates the Magi coming to see Jesus and essentially anoint him king. Uh, then we have a short period of ordinary time that lasts from Epiphany until Ash Wednesday. And this one's sort of really to commemorate or remember or lean into the life and teachings of Jesus in the Gospels. Uh, some traditions do treat Epiphany as a whole season that runs from the end of Christmas tide to Ash Wednesday. And because uh, we are generally not a church that like, leans super hard into um, like traditional liturgies, our practice here is kind of nebulous in this area. Um, but we kind of treat it as an ordinary time. Then Ash Wednesday happens, and that marks the beginning of Lent, which runs six or so weeks and is intended to be a period of reflection on, I think of what a lot of us think of it as a time to reflect on our sin, and I want to push on that and suggest that it's a time to reflect more on our whole humanness, the ways that we struggle and fail to love ourselves, others, and God, and the ways we succeed in doing those things, our mortality or our finiteness, the limits from which we live, we do, these, we do things like refrain from saying hallelujah in our corporate worship times. And really, it's a season to dream of ways to birth newness into our lives on behalf of the world. And that leads into Holy Week, ending with what's called the Triduum, which is the three holiest days of the liturgical year, Good Friday, Holy Saturday, and Easter Sunday. And Easter Sunday marks the start of Eastertide, which runs 50 days until the Feast of Pentecost, and it's during this time we sing lots of songs of the word hallelujah. And if you think about like all the like traditional Easter songs, they're all like every like third word is hallelujah. Um, like Christ the Lord is risen today, hallelujah. Every line ends with hallelujah. Um, songs about resurrection. We generally try and theme things around the resurrected Christ and what it means and invites us into. And there are a number of feasts throughout the season that mark different things that happened after Jesus rises from the dead, culminating with the Feast of the Ascension, which commemorates when Jesus ascends to the heavens. And then Pentecost happens, which is the, celebrates the birth of the church. And I hate to use the language coming of the Spirit because God's Spirit has always been there for them since the first verse of Genesis. But something unique happens here in the narrative of Acts involving the Spirit in the very early church. And then the longest season is ordinary time, which runs like all summer and all fall uh, and really is this post-Acts, post-New Testament period where we figure out what it is to follow Jesus in our day-to-day -day lives. It's the longest because it's where we are now, uh, still rolling in the ordinary as we seek out what it is to be God's people. So just to recap all that for where we are right now, this is the first Sunday of four in Advent, uh, the beginning of the first season in the liturgical calendar. This is like the first week of January. Um, the intention of the season in the tradition is to use it to prepare for the coming of God in us in the person of Jesus. As a human baby who has to be born and fed and changed, who has to learn to roll over and crawl and walk and talk, who grew out of his clothes way too soon, who had to learn his father's trade while also doing what all Jewish boys did, which was learn the Torah with hopes that he would maybe be taken in by a rabbi and follow in their footsteps. Advent is where Elizabeth learns that she's pregnant with John the Baptist and her husband is left literally speechless for like five months. Um, it's when Mary finds out she's pregnant with God, where she is literally in the process of birthing God into the world. It's hope and anticipation for God to move in both mighty and small ways. And for us, it's a season where we 
build our collective liturgy in those spaces of hope in anticipation. And, and, and really quick, I want to touch on why we do this, why it's important for us to hold these spaces of not yet. So we don't celebrate Advent or Christmas for this matter, but we've moved more and more over the last several years to like this in, in church to distinctly different seasons because it's, we, don't, we don't do this because it's always what we've done or what we're supposed to do or even because we like it. It's about rhythm and practice and storying. James K. A. Smith is a is a author and he's a philosophy professor at Calvin College. Uh, he has a growing series of books, uh, which are like there's like the everyday people version and then there's the academic version, but they're really good books and, and uh, I would highly recommend them. Um, but he's a growing series of books about the importance of rhythm and habit and liturgy for the sake of forming us as actual disciples. And by liturgy, I just mean the intentional practices we participate in in corporate worship, meaning not just singing, but communion, announcements, coffee breaks, the sermon, all of that is worship. So a real quick look at Smith's thesis on this. We're always being formed and storied by the cultural liturgies we encounter. And we are in the middle of at least two different cultural liturgies that run counter to the liturgy of Advent that is rooted in centuries of tradition. First, it's the liturgy of cultural Christmas. It says lights and saccharine songs and feel-good movies and family and gifts and Christmas trees and whatnot. Uh, and the second is what I'd argue is a cultural liturgy dressed up in Christian clothes that says don't sit in the tension of the already and the not yet. Jesus was born, so let's sing all the Christmas songs the whole way through. And I think that's at least partly rooted in our Western North American inability to hold the tension of the not yet. So Smith argues that our, our church liturgy, starting with the liturgical calendar, is a counter liturgy that moves the story of Jesus, of God coming into the world in ultimate vulnerability to be with the people in the midst of suffering and oppression that runs counter to the cultural liturgies that swirl around us. It tells a story that runs against these stories. And Smith uses the example of like the shopping mall and the, the routine we do to go shopping. And I don't know if anybody actually shops in malls anymore or if they exist. <laughs> um, but at the time that he wrote this book, they were still a thing. Uh, but the idea of like the process we go to to go shopping. Yeah. See, we need to practice Advent in this way, in a way that embraces the tension of the not yet, because that's part of our story as the people of God. We are always in spaces where, yes, we hope, and yet that hope has not been fulfilled yet in our, re our real day-to-day -day lives. These practices work to story us, to place our individual stories in relationship with the story of the people of God in the scriptures. It is not a way to erase or, or invalidate our stories. There are few more violent acts perpetrated by even well-meaning followers of Jesus than telling someone that their story and experience is not valid or true because of lack of faithfulness or trust. Even our darkest nights are part of our story and can exist fully in relationship with the stories of the scripture. We are not erased by God. Rather, our stories are framed by and interact with the scriptures as ways by which we make sense of the world. When we intentionally follow a liturgical rhythm like the seasons of Advent, when we refrain from singing Christmas songs until Christmastide and let the space of longing and asking God to come and be with us and maybe make some things right, we are formed in ways that allow us to treat ourselves kindly or to come alongside someone else who's in the midst of struggle and be present and hope with and for them. Now, one small caveat is since we aren't part of a tradition that, like, 
strictly follows the liturgical calendar, we get to play a little bit with exactly how strictly we want to follow that tradition. Um, but whatever we do, it's done with intention and forethought, and not just because it's what we always, we've always done or what we like to do. Uh, so at this point, I'd estimate we're roughly halfway through the sermon today, and we are finally getting to what the series is about. <laughs> Maybe. Everything we've talked about so far is super, super important to set the stage, but we'll real quick talk about what our sermon series is for the season of Advent. Uh, the series is called Rejoice, Emmanuel Has Come, and it's a look at some of the songs of the Advent and the Christmas season. Uh, we'll look today at O Come, O Come, Emmanuel, which is the, the sort of like foundational song for the, both the season and the series of Advent. Uh, next week, we'll look at Mary's Magnificat, the song she, she, words, the song she sings in Luke when she meets Elizabeth and they feel their babies like leap at each other's presence. Uh, then we'll also look at O Holy Night and Joy to the World. And I know they're both Christmas songs, uh, but that's why I said we get to kind of play with the rules a little bit. Um, and it's our hope that the series will help to reframe Advent and the Christmas seasons and to really kind of rattle the ways that we think about this time uh, and, and really how we follow Jesus in our lives. That's a big part of why we're starting things off with talking about O Come, O Come, Emmanuel. Aside from it being like the Advent song, it's a song that calls us to lean hard into this space of waiting in anticipation. Uh, because I think we could use a fresh imagination for that, especially at this time that has been so oversaturated with consumerism and sentimentality. D uh, two things that are immensely destructive to what the Advent season invites us into, both in practice and imagination. Now, I want to make sure that we understand what we're talking about. There's nothing wrong with enjoying, like, most of the things about our cultural Christmas season. There's a lot of problems with like rampant consumerism and the myriad ways that that stuff leads to oppression of people groups around the world and environmental destruction, among other things. But it's not bad to enjoy the lights and the trees and the music and whatnot. Sentimentality becomes a problem, though, when it starts to seep its way into our church liturgy around the season. Sentimentality is particularly insidious uh, in this way because when we adopt that sort of sentimentality around Advent and the Christmas seasons, it tends to conflate the two into the Christmas season and negates the potency of the story of Advent, of anticipation, of waiting for God to come into the world. It takes us firmly out of that already and not yet space and instead tries to shove us firmly into the already end of things, where everything is perfect and Jesus has come and God has solved all our problems, which in turn means that if you have problems, then you just aren't faithful enough or Christian enough. And I will say right now that that is violent and oppressive and it needs to be purged from our language and thought and action. The Advent season needs to be a counterpoint to the sentimentality and oversaturation of a Christmas season in our world. Jeremy Begbie is a professor at um, Duke, uh, specializes in theology and the arts. Uh, Shelley Stearns, who's a longtime friend of our church, did her PhD under him, I believe. Um, he talks a lot about sentimentality as the uh, enemy of beauty and reality. Uh, he says that sentimentality is problematic in three ways. First. It's problematic because it misrepresents, trivializes his words, evil and sin, uh, or what I would call suffering and struggle. Uh, in my classes in seminary, when we talked about this, the example we were given uh, was Thomas Kincaid paintings. Can you pull that up, Henry? Uh, which were wildly popular, at least in the church circles that I grew up in. Uh, and the reason why this was a good example is because these are, like, idyllic, right? There's never a hint of darkness or frailty or imperfection in these pictures. These paintings were wildly popular and the churches I and a lot of my classmates at the time grew up in precisely because of that reason, there was no reality. There was no grit, no challenge. Things were perfect, idyllic. Like what we imagine as heaven, the good life, the ideal. 
But those paintings ignore reality. They gloss over the heartache and the loss and wondering if you'll be able to pay your bills next month or if you can bear to have another conversation with your parent or if your kids will be safe at school. We are really good at ignoring sin and struggle in church. Like the actual reality of it. Uh, sure, we can throw out things as prayer requests and in my 10 years of working at this church, I've seen you beautiful people carry each other so well when it counts. And I want to give credit to that because you love each other really well. I'm talking about this on like a cultural level, like on a bigger than our congregation level, because when we associate ourselves with um, systems that fail to love, and when we fail to love, we're all together. This is the flip side of practicing things that the capital C church practices. We all bear our successes and our failures together. And as a broad capital C church in America, we do not hold suffering and struggle well. We avoid the darkness of reality, whether it is because we don't talk about politics or racism or sexism or homophobia because it's divisive. Or not everyone in our congregation agrees on a particular hot-button issue. Or simply, we aren't prepared to bear the emotional weight of what someone brings to us in healthy and caring and loving ways. Sentimentality says those things don't matter. Don't bring politics or violence or war or oppression or racism or broken families into the Christmas season. We want to feel joyful. Sentimentality says, let's not sit in the already and not yet space of Advent. Let's just rush to Christmas. So the second critique, that was just the first critique of sentimentality that Begbie offered. The second is, uh, that Begbie makes is that it's emotionally self-indulgent. It's feeling good about feeling. Uh, it's the self-congratulating pat on the back for being able to feel the right things about something. It's performative activism, posting something about racism or gun violence or homophobia or whatever on social media. It's also performative spirituality, feeling like we should respond in a convicted way about a sermon or a song or an altar call. It's a, it's a spirituality that limits uh, following Jesus to praying a prayer and believing the right things. And I want to make a point that the emotion, isn't the, the, the emotion first isn't the issue. Uh, like the first emotion isn't the issue. As an American, I'm an American man who grew up in a Christian household and went to church for my whole life, and I cannot tell you how many times I've had it just beat into me that emotions are bad. That everything was important, everything that was important was knowing and believing the right things. And I know that's a lie that has dehumanized me and every person who has lived life uh, as a man in this country. Uh, that is a long conversation that we don't have time to get into right now, but it is something that's present in both our culture and in the ways that American Christianity has placed primacy on the right knowing and believing. And it's something that's true in my story and I know for a number of us as well. Emotion is not the issue. The issue with sentimentality is that it's, that feeling good about feeling the right things is as far as sentimentality allows. Begbie uses the example of like, uh, I forget who he's quoting, but he's saying that like, looking at a, like a picture of kids playing soccer in a developing nation, it's like, they shed the first tear for the kids in this place, and that's not sentimentality. That's, that's real response and emotion. Emotion, or uh, sentimentality is the second tear that I shed for shedding tears about these kids in this picture. Uh, it's it's the, the, like, emotion about the emotion, feeling good about feeling something. Um, that's the problem, and it's a problem because of Begbie's third critique, which is that sentimentality avoids costly action. The combination of avoiding suffering or struggle or difficulty and the primacy of feeling good about feeling something provides us with an easy out so we can say we're following Jesus without actually making any changes. We can post the right things on social media, if we can use the right language or pray the right prayer with the right amount of conviction, we can believe in our hearts the right things. Sentimentality says that's enough. 
And man, that steals so much from the Advent season. It reduces these songs that we sing, songs that carry so much power to perform, to form us, not just in our minds, but in our bodies, to impact how we actually exist together. Sentimentality reduces those songs to just things that make us feel warm and fuzzy, especially when we sing them like we're supposed to, like we always have. See, singing is formative. And of course you'll hear that from the guy whose job isn't to invite you to sing every week. <laughs> um, but really, it's formative on both like a mental and a physical level. We're formed in our minds and emotions and also in our bodies when we sing. Uh, N.T. Wright uh, talks about singing as using our bodies as musical instruments. He talks about singing as another way that we tell the stories of the people of God so that we begin to find ourselves in those stories. Speaking of God's relationship with God's people and how God's people respond, he says that when we sing, we're actually participating in a bit of remaking of reality of our bodies, hearts, minds, and lives. And this ties in with what James Smith is talking about with the formative power of liturgy and habit. Habits and rituals and routines change our actual brain structure and form us in our bodies. Uh, there have been several studies done on the impact of singing uh, on our brains. Uh, singing releases both serotonin and oxytocin, and this is like the absolute limit of my like, biochemistry knowledge and anything <laughs> involving bodies, and I double-checked with my wife who actually knows this stuff. Um, serotonin is the sort of like mood regulator where when it's increased, we're calmed, uh, and our mood becomes increasingly more positive. Singing is a stress reliever. Uh, it's something that actually helps us feel better. Uh, and oxytocin is the love chemical. It's connected to a whole pile of reproductive processes from childbirth to lactation to sexual arousal. And it's deeply connected to bonds between people in a variety of relationships, from friendships to romantic partnerships to like the parent and baby relationship. Oxytocin is like the, the thing that makes that happen. Singing causes both of these chemicals to be released and that goes into overdrive when we sing in groups. Singing both helps us manage our struggles individually and collectively, and it bonds us as a community. There was a study done at Gothenburg University in Sweden about 10 years ago uh, that observed a choir singing together. And what was discovered is that singing also stimulates the vagus nerve, uh, which is connected to the regulation of a number of our organs, like the digestive system and heart rate. And what this study found was that singing together actually caused the like um, sinking of heart rates and breathing in the members of the choir. Singing together bonds us and connects us on all kinds of levels, from the telling the same story together, to releasing bonding and mood chemicals in our body, to actually linking heart rate and breathing together. Like our bodies sync up, and our minds sync up, and like our whole person sync up. And so let's put this in the context of singing these Advent hymns, specifically the one we're talking about today, because I promise we're actually gonna get to a Coma Coma manual, but it's an enormous stage to set, because it's the first of the series. Um, when we sing these songs, our minds and our bodies move towards each other, and we tell a collective story in an act that instills these cultural memories and these stories into our bodies and consciousness, individually and collectively. And while I know we've been talking for a while and we're just getting to the actual song we're talking about, uh, I promise all that was important, because it sets the stage for it. And so, O Come, O Come, Emmanuel. Um, a brief history of the song, the melody and the sort of like basic theme of the song, especially of the chorus, is about 1,200 years old. Uh, it's super old. It first showed up in the life of monasteries where they'd sing it with a bunch of other antiphons, which are like these short sung phrases before scripture reading or other parts of the liturgy or whatnot. Um, and they had, uh, they would like sing them like in the Advent and Christmas seasons uh, with the liturgies at that point. And they've had few variations over the centuries until the early 1600s uh, when verses, more verses started showing up, uh, all in Latin. There's a pile of verses 
Uh, but the oldest versions we have had either like five or seven verses, all in Latin and all around that antiphon refrain uh, that from the monasteries. Um, and then the English version we know showed up as one of like a handful of translations in the mid mid 1800s. Uh, so it's old and it's not. <laughs> like it's it's the already and the not yet. Um, but the lyrics call back to these images of Old Testament Israel, of longing and waiting for God to come and finally put things right. They bring forth images of Israel in exile, of all the times they were conquered, which was a lot. Uh, it was a pretty regular thing for them. Uh, and for me, the place of this song is an Advent song, specifically connects it to what, like it makes me think of like what we call the intertestamental period, uh, the space between the Old and New Testament where Protestant Bibles have a gap, um, Catholic Bibles have less of a gap, and there's a whole bunch of uh, Jewish scriptures that come from that time period. Uh, but that's a rabbit trail that we can go down another time. Um, a huge portion of the Old Testament was written, probably written, during the Babylonian exile when they were conquered by Babylon. Jerusalem was sacked, the temple was destroyed, and they're taken from their land and their homes. The place God gave them was taken from them. The place where God lived was torn down, and they were placed under Babylon's foot. Then after that, they did get to go home, but they were never quite the same, ruled over first by Persia, then Greece, then Rome. They were oppressed, conquered, treated as best as backwards, superstitious people, but always taken advantage of and treated as less than human. It was as if God had left them. That's the space that O Come, O Come, Emmanuel conjures up, the language that, that like harkens back to the Old Testament. That's what it conjures up. This song is a cry for help, a call for God to come and be with them and to set things right. And so God does. We've heard it before, but I think it bears repeating that God coming as Jesus is not what they expected. Um, that is the part of this. <laughs> um, and I don't think it's what we expect now either. Jesus wasn't a warrior that toppled Rome and restored the old empire of Israel. And Jesus didn't come as someone who demands church attendance, a quiet time, prayer for salvation, and unfettered obedience to a culture war. Jesus himself actually lays out in his first sermon what God coming to be with us involves. See, at the beginning of his ministry in the Gospel of Luke, starting in Luke 4.16, Jesus goes to his hometown, to Nazareth, and he goes to the synagogue, and he's handed a scroll to read. So he reads a section from Isaiah 61. And so let's read the passage from Luke, which is on the screen. Uh, when he came to Nazareth, where he had been brought up, he went to the synagogue on the Sabbath day, as was his custom. He stood up to read, and the scroll of the prophet Isaiah was given to him. He unrolled the scroll and found the place where it was written. The Spirit of the Lord is upon me, because he has anointed me to bring good news to the poor. He has sent me to proclaim release to the captives and recovery of sight to the blind, to let the oppressed go free, to proclaim the year of the Lord's favor. As he rolled up the scroll, gave it back to the attendant and sat down. And he rolled up the scroll. The eyes of all in the synagogue were fixed on him. Then he began to say to them, Today, this scripture has been fulfilled in your hearing. And then all the people are like, Whoa. Like, that's what it says. That's the Greek translation. Whoa. Uh, and he listened. He says, listen, you guys aren't going to like this, but God is really interested in expanding God's love to everyone, not just you guys who we've all thought are like on the inside. And then it says, uh, when they heard of this, all in the synagogue, they were filled with rage. They got up, drove him out of the town, and led him to the brow of the hill on which their town was built, so that they might hurl him off the cliff. But he passed through the midst of them and went on his way. Jesus says, listen, all of you, you want to know what God being here, being here with you looks like? It looks like good news to the poor. 
It looks like released captives. It looks like the blind seeing again. It looks like the oppressed going free. It looks like the year of God's favor. Uh, this is a call back to Leviticus and the year of Jubilee, which was a practice that every 50 years, all land went back to its like original owners and families. Uh, prisoners and slaves were set free. Debts were forgiven, wiped away. Uh, and land was allowed to recover from being worked hard by the people. And it was meant to be a move towards what God desired for God's people. And Jesus says he came to fulfill that. But he did one super important thing. Uh, See, he was quoting Isaiah 61, and he actually edited the text uh, by leaving out a verse in Isaiah about God's vengeance. Uh, the next verse after this um, says it'll be the year of the, or it'll be the, the day of the Lord's vengeance. Uh, and Jesus is saying vengeance is not part of what God is doing. He's saying to a people who have been conquered and oppressed that yes, God is about freedom, liberation, and justice, but not vengeance. And he gives several examples of times where God was present to and cared for those that they thought were on the outside. And he tells them they're going to have a hard time with that, which they did, and they tried to kill him for it. Uh, but the fact of the matter is that according to Jesus, God is for everyone. It is a kingdom more than a kingdom. A binding of all creation together and all of God's image bearers leaning into our full humanity together. Liberation and restoration are the central themes of the Gospels of what Jesus is about and about what the Advent and Christmas seasons are about. Jesus' words mean that's true, especially for the ones that are on the outside. Uh, it means we have to listen to people of color whose faith traditions carry deep richness centered around liberation and restoration of God carrying them. It means listening to the LGBT community who just wants to be allowed to exist and love and be loved. It means listening to women who have been pushed aside both in the church and in our broader culture and told their voices are either too abrasive or not welcome. It means listening to people with disabilities who are so often ignored and erased. We hear those themes of liberation, liberation and restoration when we sing O Come, O Come, Emmanuel. We hear O Come, O Come, Emmanuel, and ransom captive Israel. O come, thou rod of Jesse, free thine own from Satan's tyranny. O come, desire of nations, bind all peoples in one heart and mind. Bid envy, strife, and quarrel cease and fill the whole world with heaven's peace. That last verse there, that is talking about everyone. Like God coming and helping us get our act together to stop fighting and work towards our collective and freedom and life towards shalom. We don't sing these songs to feel happy, comfortable feelings about the Christmas season. We don't sing them because they make us feel warm and fuzzy. Singing these songs, especially together, singing O Come, O Come, Emmanuel, leaning fully into the Advent season of waiting, anticipating, and longing for God to move, to sit in the almost liminal space between the already and the not yet. That is a prophetic act. That is a way of saying together that God has come and is coming. That acts of liberation and restoration, the very elements of the year of the Lord's favor that Jesus talks about, uh, letting those things form us in our hearts and our minds and our bodies as individual people and as a community. Can you allow that to happen? Can you lean into these hard songs we sing, lean hard into these songs that we sing during this season to the decor that, yeah, looks sparkly and pretty, but also carries with it the story of longing and for things to be made right and asking for God to move and to the practices and resources we're offering to further press into these ideas and form us. Can you hear the cry of God's people in both the scriptures and in these songs uh, and the people around us to, for God to move and to stop evil doing and dehumanization. Can you hear that cry 
from people on the margins in our world today. We live in this already and not yet space. Jesus has come, yes. And yet, things are not as they should be. We know this. So I want to leave us with that one question because I feel like I've said all I've got for now. Are you willing to do this? Are you willing to do the good work of letting ourselves be formed as a community, bonded together, storied through songs, and practice and spaces as God's people to welcome strangers, to love neighbors and enemies, to imagine a world of liberation, restoration, and justice, and then take steps as the hands and feet of God in this world to bring that about. I want to invite the worship team back up, uh, and we're going to sing the song that we've sung already this morning and talked about for the last, I don't know how long we've been talking, uh, O Come, O Come, Emmanuel. They'll play a bit, and they'll make some space for us to reflect and wrestle with that question, and then they'll lead us in the song. And so I'm going to pray and then hand it over to them. Oh God, would you be with us? Would you uh, place this story deep in our bones? Uh, would you help us to carry uh, your goodness and your presence uh, to the people around us and for ourselves? Um, would you put that story deep within us and help us to, to hear that story uh, alongside our stories? Uh, would you instill in us a, the ability to sit in the space between the already and the not yet, uh, to know that you are working and still say, God, come and move in this world? And would you help us to know uh, that you are about bringing good news to the poor, that you, are, uh, that you came to proclaim release to the captives and recovery of sight to the blind, to let the oppressed go free, and to proclaim the year of the Lord's favor. Amen.